Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. My name is Stakuyi. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Now, you might be able to hear something a little bit different. In fact, you might be able to hear something very clear. Much, much higher quality audio, which is something that we have been very strongly focusing on. For weeks. I mean, literally, we had a $200 Blue Yeti mic that we sucked. Yeah, we tried everything with it, obviously, and it did not work. It didn't work for YouTube. It didn't work for Twitch. It didn't work for the podcast. And we just had to, you know figure out what we were doing we bought like a 130 dollar podcasting soundboard slash mic on amazon and it is so much better leagues better than anything we could have gotten from that blue yeti mic which just this is just an anti-ad for blue yeti yes this is now blue yeti if you ever try to reach out to me in order to sponsor me i will more than likely laugh in your face i i highly doubt they would try to sponsor you after this yeah no now what, what is the brand of what we're using now what is it called? Ma- Maonu? Maonu. Maonu. You it's, got- like, it's on Amazon. If you just Google podcasting equipment bundle, it's like the best seller. Free advertisement for you all. Uh, please sponsor us because I love you now. Give me kisses. <laughs> Probably shouldn't be doing that next to my wife. Anyway, on to the topic of today's podcast because we're already starting off on a tangent, just really going into things, which there will be a number of tangents, and I do apologize. After the... um explicitness of that one video that we did on toys and things through history i I really had to try and think about okay how am i going to approach this subject because today's topic is unix yeah unix the uh the men with no balls and then i try to think like oh my god are you a eunuch i will lick you (laughs) you are right here next i will lick you please don't (laughs) so I was really trying to think, like, how should I do this? And I realized, okay, I want to tell this story because it's really good. But at the same time, there's a lot of details of a lot of varying things that I need to just not say because some of this stuff can go into very deep detail. Very deep detail. I don't think we should go into that much detail here today. That's just me, though. Okay, but it's fine. Like, at least we have the balls to talk about it, because these guys certainly don't. Okay, just go. Please just go. (laughs) Really? Yeah, of course I'm going to do that one. It's a good one. This podcasting bundle comes with a soundboard, so good luck, guys. Okay, fine. I'll just do it for you. (laughs) I knew which one exactly you were planning for it here, so this should be nice. So... I know it was a bad joke, so let's go ahead and explain this, right? So Unix, what are they? You know what it is, right? 
Yeah, they're like castrated men. Yes, that is the gist of it. So a eunuch is quite literally just a castrated man. And the term usually refers to those who have uh, been deliberately castrated in order to perform specific social duties that were once very common in like past societies. The earliest records of intentional castration for the purpose of, well, using them as castrated men, that comes from the Sumerian cities of Lagash in the 21st century B.C., over the millennia, eunuchs performed a huge variety of different functions in many different cultures. They did things like they were, you know, quarters. Uh, they were treble singers, which, OK, I this is I knew that the moment that I had this here, I had to talk about it. And it's its own little tangent because the topic of today's subject for eunuchs is mostly going to focus on the Ottomans because that's the one that I'm most familiar with. But there are a lot of varying other eunuch cultures around the world for a lot of different things. But I had to get this. So a treble singer. What is that? Now, Gabby, I actually briefly mentioned this to you. And you did say that you knew a little bit about this because they drilled it into you in theater. So can you can you go ahead and explain for the audience a little bit about what you remember for the purpose of this? To get men that could sing specific notes, they would alter their downstairs area so that they can sing beautifully. So, I mean, if you think that you are dedicated to theater or opera or whatever art you're into, you're not. They are. Oh, my God. No, that is absolutely true. So this a treble singer. The other name that they have for it here is a castrato. So a castrato is a male artificially produced soprano, mezzo soprano or an alto singer whose voice has been artificially changed through castration before puberty. And this is done in order for the child to be more physically suited for advanced training as a singer. A castrato may also be one who, because of their, you know, the hormonal condition never reaches sexual maturity. The practice was almost exclusively an Italian one, largely being, and this is where it gets really even more messed up, largely being influenced by the Catholic Church beginning in the mid-16th century. Why am I not shocked? Like, you could have said any other church, and I've been like, wow, crazy. But then you said the Catholic Church, and I was like, yeah, that checks out. Uh. I say this as a person raised Catholic. Yeah, when you know the history, you kind of you, you kind of would believe it for anything that was done in the name of art and beauty there. So today, castrados are often regarded as a type of manufactured virtuoso who were victims of the craft that they were. Some were kind of forced into it. Others did it voluntarily. It's a it's a whole thing for it. The castrato or the plural form in the sense uh, castrati. Where they were rare, which they were rarely referred to, because the more common term, the nicer term that wasn't just referring to their testicles, was musical or musici, uh, which you know for music, like literally what the entire purpose of this was. Another synonym was even iverato, literally meaning the unmanned. The term castrato generally, as you can probably imagine, carries a bit of a negative connotation, and is therefore the name used most frequently today as a reflection of the fact that people today disapprove of chopping your balls off for the purpose of being able to sing. <laughs> the custom was generally, over time, it fell out of favor, and by the late 1800s, it was banned. 
The last castrato, a man by the name of Alessandro Mor- uh, Moresi, was born in 1858 and retired in 1913, which there's actually a case of, um, I-, I believe it's this guy here, there is a recording, there's only one recording in existence of a castrato actually singing, but people generally don't like it, not because of it sounds abusive or anything like that, no, no, no. They don't like it because the person that this is the recording of was generally regarded as not being one of the better singers. (laughs) So the one example that we have of in history was one that people probably wouldn't have wanted to use as an example. (laughs) And that is hilarious to me. That's kind of sad. Listen, listen. I think anyone who did this was good. They did what they had to. They were good. Let's give the man some credit. Well, they didn't have to, but I mean, there was a variety of different reasons. Some had to, but it, it really depends. So you might wonder, why would someone do this? What is the effect? Like, obviously, it, it, there's the quote, makes you a better singer, but really, what does it do? So castration before puberty or in its early stages, it prevents a boy's uh, larynx from being transformed by the normal physiological events of puberty. And as a result, the vocal ranges of prepubescence, which is shared by both sexes, you pretty much have it like that much more flexible voice that you have as a kid is it it sticks around. It doesn't go away in my in my case, I, I definitely lost a lot of my capabilities, as you might be able to hear from what my voice became. Okay, I just want to add to this. My brother and I were raised very musical, mm-hmm. and when we were kids, he can hit all of the notes I could. He was so talented. He was in shows. He hit puberty. Tanked. I mean, his range is gone, and he never lets me forget it, because obviously I'm still amazing and musically talented. Daniel, if you're listening, yeah, I had to. We should have castrated you, buddy. Don't worry. There's still time. That is not (laughs) what I was saying. That is... Just ignore him. (laughs) Okay, so... As the castrato's body grows, his lack of testosterone causes his uh, ephysis. I think that's how I would say that. The bone joints, basically. It it causes them to not harden in the normal manner. Thus, the limbs of the castrati often grew unusually long, as did the bones of their ribs. And so this, combined with intense training, gave the castrati unrivaled lung power and breath capacity. Like, these guys would be able to belt notes which in turn made them exceptionally valuable for like opera singers and you know how big opera was was in like italy and austria and that kind of thing so italian opera was regarded for centuries as like the pinnacle of art and that 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 is what they would be used for like the best singers were literally just castrated Okay, and because that they were able to operate through these child-sized vocal cords, their voices were ridiculously flexible, and it gave a very different voice than what you'd see from the equivalent adult female voice, and higher vocal ranges, just, it gave everything. Like, the, these guys were phenomenally good singers. So many of them were, how should I put this, they weren't Spanish, but many of them had Spanish names, even if you had a english one or a german one or something like that they would typically have like spanish or italian names 
and they first appeared in Italy in the mid-16th century. Uh, so Alfonso II de Este, who was the Duke of Ferrara, he'd become an early enthusiast by 1556, and there were castrati in the court chapel of Munich by 1574. And it's likely that the Palestrina, the director of the choir of St. Peter of Rome, like from 1576 to 1594, would have been very keen to emulate his famous contemporary. And in 1589, Pope Sixtus V, uh, he reorganized the choir specifically in order to include Castrati. And in 1599, they were first admitted into the Pope's personal choir of the Sistine Chapel. Do you have any idea how many bad jokes I could make with this? I'm not going to. I'm not going to, mind you. But do you have any idea how many could be made? I don't think you should make them. I'm not going to, but I could. And that's what hurts me. <laughs> so Castrati, over time, became to, they, they, they supplanted any kind of boy. And the reason that they pretty much did so was because per papal order, it was something called the, and I'm going to read it right here, the, uh, the Pauline dictum, mulier tacitat in ecclesia, let your women keep silent in church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Literally, it was, hey, uh, yeah, we don't want women actually singing or doing anything in church. Uh, it's just supposed to be men. <laughs> so instead, they use castrated boys. Again, there are so many things that I could say from this, but I'm not. I'm not. So by the 1720s and the 1730s, which was the height of the Castrati craze, it was estimated that approximately 4,000 boys were being castrated annually in the service of art. Many of these artists came from poor homes and were, well, more or less sold by their parents to the church or to a single master in the hope that their child might successfully, you know, lift them out of their lowly status in society. There are, though, records of some young boys asking to be operated on in order to preserve their voices. Again, there are some records, but the majority of these guys were just sold by their parents. Which, I mean, I guess if you have like eight sons and you're not really worried about someone trying to uh, keep up the family name or anything like that, you could spare one of them, probably. But honestly, the real sad part about all this is that not all castrated boys had successful careers on the opera stage. The better ones, but ones who were not quite as good to go in opera, they would sing in like the cathedral or the church choirs and that sort of thing. While some of these guys, they just turned to straight theater, just like regular theater, which you got to think that how I, I just I got to stop. I got to stop and say this. Imagine you're at the age of like eight or nine you're a pretty good singer as a kid your parents literally sell you to some old guy to and he chops off your your balls and then you don't even become successful after that like you just go on to be a kind of poor theater kid so now you got no balls and no money <laughs> like <laughs> it just sucks but okay where was i um Man, that was actually a really long tangent. Like, this whole thing. This is supposed to be about the Ottomans, and instead we're talking about Italian church boys. 
So in addition to the singers, eunuchs could also be like um, they, they were like government officials, military commanders. They would be the guardians of women or harem servants. And in some societies, the notion of eunuch was even expanded to be things like men who were sexually impotent or were celibate. You, you, you could use a variety of different terms for it. So the word eunuch comes from the Greek eune, which means like bed, and ekin, or to keep. So effectively, a eunuch was a bed keeper. So servants or slaves, they were usually castrated in order to make them safer for being in a royal court, where if you have physical access to the ruler and his family and all of your parts are uh, intact, this might, in some cases, for some people, be seen as a kind of risk. So seemingly lowly domestic functions, such as being things like making the ruler's bed, bathing him, cutting his hair, carrying him to his bed, or even just like relaying simple messages, that would give them the ruler's ear and could impart, you know, power, at least in some sort, on these people that were normally of a very humble status. Eunuchs, supposedly, did not have any loyalties to the military, nothing to aristocracy. They didn't have really a family of their own because they weren't, since most of them were, you know, bought and sold and transported around to places, they didn't really have siblings or parents or other family members, and they weren't going to have kids, obviously, for very, very obvious reasons. So, typically speaking, there was no real risk of them trying to accrue power for themselves and then passing it on to family members because, again, there weren't any. So in many cases, they were seen as being more trustworthy because they were less interested in a private dynasty. However, since their condition did usually lower their social status, they could also easily be killed. I mean, the thing is, someone's going to care if a noble's son or someone gets killed. Someone might even kill if, or care if a merchant's kid gets killed. I mean, less people in that society, but they're still going to. But if a eunuch got killed, there's no one to really care about them. There's nothing. So they were seen as something that were not only safer in the first place, but if you had to get rid of one of them, they were disposable, effectively. That's really sad. I mean, that that's kind of... Welcome to history. Most things in here are either sad or funny, but also sad. There's very few things that are just, like, funny. That's pretty much how it goes. Now, the terms that I listed there are really, um, like, when it comes to killing eunuchs and that kind of thing without repercussion, we would associate that with, say, the Ottomans. Because in cultures that had both harems and eunuchs, the latter were sometimes used as harem servants, which would be like they would handle the wives and the odalisks or the serglio guards. And those terms, as I said, that's a very Ottoman term. They came from the Ottoman Empire system of eunuchs, which is something that I have covered in depth on multiple TikToks for like the actual harem system. And I've even made a few videos about it on YouTube. If you haven't seen those, go check it. I'm just going to plug this. Go ahead right here. But either way, I've made several videos and different things about this topic. And it's just it's it's really fascinating stuff like <laughs> I've not done nearly as much digging in regards to eunuchs in general, in comparison to, like, the rest of the harem. So I thought that we should go ahead and talk about them in the harem and what it is, like, where they came from, what it is they do, why were they there? So eunuchs had been present in earlier Islamic households and courts, 
but the Ottomans really only adopted them after conquering territory from the Christian Byzantine Empire, which was the Eastern Roman Empire, but we nowadays call it the Byzantine Empire. Eunuch making was one of the many Byzantine customs that was maintained after the 1453 Ottoman conquest of Istanbul. The seclusion of women in the harem was similarly adapted by the Ottoman Sultan uh, Mehmet the Conqueror from the practice of the Byzantine Genesia, or separate women's quarters, which that's actually an interesting thing to note in earlier Greek law about what constituted a eunuch. So the Byzantine Christians based the definition on behavior and more specifically procreation rather than physical genitalia. Hence, by the late antiquity, the term eunuch really came to me multiple groups. It could be castrated men, but it also could be men who either were impotent, like they just couldn't get it up, or they were celibate. Like you might just be called a eunuch if you were literally just a person who had sworn yourself to celibacy. Interesting. So monks were eunuchs? Yes, but also meant there were a number of monks that were not eunuchs despite their vows. That's a whole other thing when it comes to different... I would like to hear about that, specifically <laughs> that next time. Oh my god. Are we going to talk about the, the Pope who held massive no-no clothes parties? Why haven't I heard about him before? Okay, that's going to be the next podcast then, because that is a whole other thing that we can do. But yes, there was a pope who had, um, he had a lot of parties without clothes and lots of people of varying different g genders in there who also had no clothes. <laughs> We're going to keep it to that. So... The broad sense of the term eunuch is reflected in Roman law, which came back from like Justinian I in the 6th century, known as the Digest or the Pandex. And the text distinguishes between two types of eunuchs. You have the Spadones, which was this general term denoting one who has no generative or procreative power or an impotent person, whether by nature or by castration. And the second term, castrati, castrated males, physically were incapable of procreation. Spadones were actually eligible to marry women, institute heirs, and adopt children. So you could have a person who had sworn themselves to celibacy. They could still get married. They could still adopt someone else's kids. They just would be called that anyway because they themselves were not, you know, doing the deed. But that's kind of out of choice. And they were still allowed to get married and adopt. In the case of castrati those who were actually castrated no they were not allowed they they were not allowed to adopt kids they were not allowed to get married they weren't allowed to do anything because it didn't matter that they couldn't physically have kids if they adopted a kid then that means that they would still be able to want to be try to pass things down and that was kind of the whole point of having a eunuch was that you didn't want someone who was thinking about a personal dynasty or anything so that's what that was. In fact, funny thing from it here, another little side tangent to the side tangent. Uh, Jesus, in many, like much literature, was referred to as uh, like Spadones because he didn't. Hey, everyone. It's you here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. 
Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Do the things. So, yeah, that, 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 that's its own interesting thing. Uh, and it caused some confusion because there are a number of people who try to assert that, oh, Jesus was actually a eunuch. But there's there's no there's no context for that other than the word spadonis, which I've heard again, a lot has of that things, meaning. but I've never heard that. Yeah, no, it, it's a whole thing going back with Greek translations and its own interesting thing. But that's the Greeks. According to Muslim tradition, no man could lay eyes on another man's harem. Thus, anyone who was, say, less than a man was required for the role of watching over the harem women. So eunuchs tended to be, like, male prisoners of war, and they were castrated typically before puberty and then condemned to a life of servitude. In the Ottoman court and other wealthy households, eunuchs served as a neutral, unthreatening, non gendered, I guess you could say, emissary or agent. And there was plenty of demand for eunuchs. I mean, there was a steady supply that was guaranteed by Arab horsemen who would go raiding down into Africa or Berber pirates raiding shipping lanes across Europe. Many, in fact, in some cases, most died during the castration process. I think I read somewhere in there that out of every three males that were castrated, only one would survive. The process and why does it sound like the witcher trials i mean it basically is but instead of getting super paul superpowers you lose your balls and in some cases more yeah we're gonna get into that because that's a whole other thing and I, that's why i can't go into detail because it's gonna i don't want this to be <laughs> i don't want this one to be explicit in terms of its rating so that is actually where there's some serious irony regarding the survival rate and the price and the value associated with eunuchs. So white eunuchs were first provided from when Christian areas were conquered. So Circassia, Georgia, Armenia, Hungary, Slavonia, the German prisoners of war, these kind of things. These white eunuchs were captured during conflicts that arose between the Ottoman Empire and the Balkan countries. Black units or eunuchs, were captured from Egypt, Abyssinia, and Sudan. Black slaves were captured from the Upper Nile and then were transported to markets on the Mediterranean Sea, like Mecca, Medina, Beirut, all these other kinds of places. All eunuchs were castrated en route to the markets by Egyptian Christians or Jews. And you might think, okay, so wait, so it's Arab raiders that were going and capturing these guys, but then it was Christians and Jews that were cutting their balls off? Why? It's a very specific reason. Castration is considered mutilation, which it, it is, like it absolutely is. And a charge, or a charge, it's a change in God's creation whose prohibition is included in the Quran. In the verse 3030, so direct your face toward the religion inclining to truth, adhere to the fitra of Allah upon which he has created all people. No change should there be in the creation of Allah. So yeah, the, the gist of it is that in Islam, you cannot castrate people. Like, that's not a thing that you can do. That's. I think that is a great rule that we should have in most things. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
I'm just saying. Apparently, some of us don't have that rule. We should add it. Yeah. Well, the irony of it is it's like one of those things where it's like one rule for thee, but not for me, that sort of thing. So even though they wouldn't do it themselves, if someone else wanted to go around chopping off dudes' balls and then just sell them to them, they'll accept it. Like, in fact, there was a huge market for it. Like, they're not going to say no. There's actually a lot of Islamic text that describe, and this is where I'm saying this, they describe in vivid detail the process of castration, but I am not going to go through that. We're just going to skip this as I have no wish to freak you out, freak people out on here even more, and probably get this podcast removed from uh, from any services. So we're, we're, we're going to not do that. But what I will tell you is that there were several different types of eunuchs depending on their level of castration. Now, you might wonder what I mean by level. Well, the first one is the worst one, the sandali or the clean shaven. Now, the parts. Oh, no. Yeah. Have you have you seen you've seen segments of Game of Thrones? Unfortunately. Right. OK. So remember how you had the uh, the unsullied were completely clean-shaven. Yes. So if you all know what it is that I'm talking about, this is essentially what I'm referring to. The the parts in this case were swept off by a single cut of the razor. And then a tube was set in the urethra and the wound was cauterized with boiling oil. The patient would then be planted in a fresh dunghill and his diet would be made up into milk and if he was under puberty, he might survive. Keep in mind, How is that legal? It, At some point, someone should have been like, hey, dude, that's kind of messed up, bestie. Yeah. Yeah, no shit. That's pretty much how it was. But so the eunuch whose penis is removed, he retains all the power of copulation and procreation, but without any of the ability. Like, basically, he could receive, but he can't do anything. And so they, they had this device. They had this device, and it's called a um, a, a couchic, couchoak, something like that. Basically, it's a little rod that they would use to hold it to the um, hole that remains and use it to pee. And basically, that's what it is that they would do. Yeah. So, yeah. The eunuch, or the classical uh, thibius, or semvir, who had been rendered sexless by the removing of the testicles, or by being bruised, twisted, seared. Okay, there's, basically, there's a lot of different ways that they would castrate someone. You might still literally have your testicles, but they've been damaged and mangled to the point that they're literally inca- they cannot be used. If you have made it to this point, wow. Amazing. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. Good luck with the rest of this. Well, now we're going to get into the racial aspect of it. I just didn't think it could get worse. Oh, yeah, it does. Because especially when you think about the um, the differences between people here and what we associate now with, say, modern stereotypes, this is where it's arguably even more messed up from things. Like, I'm really happy that we have this amazing audio equipment for you all to hear how horrible this is. Oh, yeah, the first one among all this for good yeah, audio quality is going to be end? this. Uh, kind of, yeah. Oh, praise it. Praise yeah. The Lord. <laughs> kind of. 
So here's where we get into the racial aspect. Black eunuchs tended to be the first category, the Sandali, while white eunuchs were the second or third category. Plus, they would have, so what they would do is they, they, the first ones, the black ones, would usually have the entire parts and everything chopped off. Meanwhile, the white ones usually only had the testicles removed. That's racist. Well, there's a specific reason why they did this, and it actually makes sense for what would happen with the eunuchs. So there is a big power dynamic in there, and it's it's going to sound fucked up, but it's... All of this has sounded... I know, I know, I know. But in this case, the power dynamic in the end is actually in the black eunuch's favor. And we'll explain that. I wouldn't want someone to go through with this. There is a silver lining, no matter how slim it is. Maybe about the size there of a little a rod that is stuck lining. into a hole. This, just, no, just stop. <laughs> just Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Because I know that it's necessary. We should have been adding them the entire time during a lot of parts of this. Okay, so where was I in this? Because black eunuchs lacked any parts, they would typically serve in the harem, while white eunuchs would serve in the government and away from the women. And so you might think, okay, wait a minute. So the white ones get to keep their penises even though they lose their testicles, but then they, they get like government jobs? While the other ones are stuck in the harem with or surrounded by women that they can't do anything with? That sounds awful, right? Yes. There's the thing. The, the white ones were typically just like this simple government bureaucrats and that kind of thing. Oh, but there's a whole other dynamic. We'll get into that. So most eunuchs arrived as gifts from governors or diff from different provinces. And at the end of their training as young eunuch pages, eunuchs would be assigned to a service. White eunuchs were placed under the patronage of various government officials or even into the service of the sultan himself, like in the Tokapi Palace. And if they were black eunuchs, they were placed into the service of the harem personage, such as a kadin, which was like a, a favored wife, or a daughter or sister of the sultan. They would also serve under the Kislar Aga, the master of the girls, the chief black eunuch, which that was actually a, a thing in here. The Kislar Aga was the third highest ranking official in the empire after the sultan and the grand vizier. So that means this one black eunuch, this guy who has no parts, he is the third most powerful man in the entire empire. But at what cost? Okay, don't even tell me the cost. I know. Thank you. <laughs> so he got to be the commander of the uh, Baltasi Corps, or the Halberdiers, which was part of the Imperial Army. His position was a pasha, which was a general, of three tails. Tails, in this case, is referring to uh, peacock tails, and the most number of tails permitted being four, which was worn by the sultan. He could approach the sultan at any time, and functioned as a private messenger between the Sultan and the Grand Vizier. He was the most important link between the Sultan and the Valide Sultan, which was the mother of the current reigning Sultan. So the Kislar Aga would lead new odalisks to the Sultan bedchamber, and that was the only man, tech quote-unquote man, who could enter the harem should there be any nocturnal emergencies, I guess I would phrase that as. His duties were simply to protect the women, to provide and to purchase the necessary odalisks for the harem, which in that term odalisk is that's like the lowest rank. It's it's basically a concubine. It's a servant slash slave who was bought to be brought into the harem um, and to oversee the promotion 
of the women, which was usually done after the death of a higher ranking Kaden. So basically you'd have these Kaden's who were like the favored wives and they would have their own ranking system. Are you saying Karen's? Kaden, like K-A-T-I-N, Kaden. I might even be saying that wrong, but that, that's basically what it is. So you'd have these ranked ones, like maybe you have four or five, and each one would be named like the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. And when one would die, the others theoretically should move up to next in line. And you want to be the first one, like you want to be the primary. But more than anything, you want it to be the Valide Sultan, which was the mother of the next sultan, because they had far more power and influence over the sultan than any kind of wife or anything like that. Like, that, that's really where it was. So he acted as a witness for the sultan's marriage, the birth ceremonies. He arranged all the royal ceremonial events, such as circumcision parties, weddings, the whole works. He also delivered sentence to harem women who were accused of crimes, taking the guilty women to the executioner to be placed into sacks and drowned in the Bosphorus, which lay outside of the Tukhapi Palace. Yeah, this is a whole other tangent here of dark and messed up things. Do you remember that one time that I covered um, Ibrahim the Mad? Remember that sultan that I would talk about? Yes. Okay, so for those of you who, who don't know, Ibrahim the Mad was... He's my personal favorite sultan just because of how absolute insane his story that is. That sounds it, insane. It, he it, should not be your favorite sultan. Well, I think that his story in and of itself would be a fun podcast one. So we got the crazy pope next one, and I think that we should do Ibrahim the Mad after that. There's a lot of different ones for it. So he had this favorite huge concubine. And when I say huge, I mean he was a chubby chaser. He liked them big. That was the whole point. Um, and she convinced him that one of his concubines was betraying him, was unfaithful to him. So, but she didn't know who it was because it was like a rumor. She didn't quite know. She didn't know these details. And it made him go, I mean, he was already mad and he was already paranoid. So it made him rage, basically. It made him go even further insane. And she knew how to play him. He raged for days. Days demanding information on this murderous traitor. But no matter how much he interrogated people, there was no name. Nothing would ever come. So he decided, screw it. We're just going to order every concubine be executed by drowning instead. And thus, all 280 women were allegedly tied into sacks and then tossed into the sea. And that is a sentence that would have been carried out by the chief eunuch. So that's where that comes from. Now, the chief white eunuch, on the other hand, was the head of the inner service, which is the uh, the palace bureaucracy and the head of the palace school, which was the school for white eunuchs. He was also the gatekeeper in chief, the head of the infirmary, the master of the ceremonies of the Serglio and the copy aga, which that is the white eunuch, the copy aga controlled all messages, petitions and state documents addressed to the sultan and was allowed to speak to the sultan in person. Now, in 1591, Murad III transferred the powers from the white to the black eunuchs, as there was way too many, like, embezzlements and various other crimes that were being attributed to white eunuchs, among them per being, um, what would be the term? Intimate with the women of the harem? Because remember, they may have lost their testicles, but they still had other parts. So there were, uh, there were cases of it, and they just decided to basically remove all power and authority from, like, major power and authority from the white eunuchs. So these guys, not only did they lose their testicles, but they also lost the majority of the powers that were associated with being eunuchs. They were simply 
little bureaucrats now. Basically, all major power and authority went to the black eunuchs, who had no parts. And that's where that came from. The copy Aga's loss of power was seen through the decreasing of his ceremonial duties, which still had various stipends that were entailed, and so they basically got paid for it. And so by removing a lot of these powers, that would decrease their income, and then power even from there. Originally, the copy Aga was the only eunuch that was allowed to speak to the sultan alone, but because they became less important, you had, you know, the Valade Sultan and the Kizlar Aga, they were able to request private audiences with the sultan also. Because of their possible disloyalty, white eunuchs were assigned positions that did not bring them into contact with harem women, as many of them, as I said, had incomplete castrations. The number that they had usually in the Seraglio at any given time was somewhere around like three to nine hundred. So there were over a thousand eunuchs just serving different roles there. In the late 1600s, the power of the black eunuchs grew even further. During the Kadalar Sultanati, which was the reign of women, the eunuchs increased their political leverage by taking advantage of child sultans or mentally incompetent ones. It was actually during one of these periods of enthronement of child sultans that it caused everything just basically spiraled out into political instability. These young teenage sultans would be guided by regencies that were usually formed from the Valade Sultan, the Grand Vizier, and the Valade's other supporters. The Kislar Aga and the Valade Sultan and the Kadin's intimate and uh, valuable accomplices were, were usually the ones that were controlling things behind the scenes there. So yeah, basically at different points, these people pretty much rode the empire into the ground. But that brings up an interesting point. Like, why white and black eunuchs? Why give black eunuchs so much power and importance? Well, the key reason here was availability. Egypt could easily tap into the ancient slave caravan routes that ran through Sudan, while Muslim kingdoms that had emerged along Africa's Red Sea coast during the medieval period would raid the kingdom of Ethiopia for slaves, whom they would transship across the Red Sea to the Arabian Peninsula. The Ottomans in the late 16th century went so far as to conquer a good chunk of the Horn of Africa, as well as part of Sudan, which in turn would give them direct control, I mean, at least for a bit, over the slave trade routes. Apart from availability, the sheer cultural and linguistical differences that would like that you had between African harem eunuchs and the harem residents, which, you know, the Ottomans came... Like the Ottomans predominantly had these from the the Balkans and the Caucasians. That's where most of their servants were coming from. So the idea of it was that if you had all these people from all these different tribes and kingdoms and groups down in Africa who had completely different cultures, completely different languages, just had no real relation or interaction with one another, then this would reduce the chances of disloyalty even further because it keeps them separated and divided. You said from the Caucasians. Do you mean the Caucasus? Did, did I say Caucasians? Yes, you did. Oh my God, I did. Sorry. So for the Caucasian, like they were Caucasian, Caucasian. You know what? Screw it. I don't even know where that is. We're keeping it in. It is what it is. In the end, being a eunuch sucked. It really did. But it wasn't the end of the world for some of these guys. Like you lost a lot, both figuratively and very literally. But in the end, you could become exceptionally powerful. So powerful, in fact, that you could take over a country, as they did in the case of different parts of, like, China, as an example. But that is a story for another time. If I tried to cover everything besides just Ottoman harems 
and Unix and that kind of thing, I would literally just go on forever because there are so many different variants all over the world. I just figured I'd want to focus on this one kind of thing. And with that, I think that we're going to end things for today. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. Let us know how this mic sounds. We're still working on it. We know we can still improve, but this is a huge step up. Yeah, literally one of the most common criticisms, like the number one criticism that we see in all of our reviews is, oh, I love the podcast, but the audio is always a bit off. If this sounds good and you like it, please do put in a review that says so, because that will let people know who go in that we have actually fixed it now. Because I don't want people to think like a year from now, it's like, oh, wait a minute, hold on. Do they still have just bad audio? Oh, we'll just delete the old episodes and leave them on Patreon only. And delete the old reviews? Because that's what it no, would no, be. No, the old episodes. Oh, that's a, there's an idea. Well, anyway, thank you all very much for listening, and I will see you all next time. Goodbye, my host. Bye. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.